0: chapter twelve of the story of a modern woman this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the story of a modern woman by ella hepworth dixon chapter twelve hemming was there now sitting on the hard sofa opposite very bronzed since she had last seen him but studiously correct in his town clothes and his frothy white tie at the first instant when she had gone into the drawing-room to meet him they had stared at each other as if they were strangers then vincent hemming had advanced to meet her with his unemotional smile holding in his hand a new shiny hat and a minute later it seemed natural enough to both of them that her blond head should be resting on the young man's shoulder and that he should be murmuring vague phrases which for once had nothing to do with the enfranchisement of the woman of the anglo-saxon race Like all people who have been separated for a long time, they found little or nothing to say. And did you have a good passage across the Atlantic, asked Mary, when she had made him sit on the hard little sofa, and she had taken a stiff high chair some little way off, and was looking at him with all her eyes? Was this neatly turned-out young man, in his tightly-buttoned dog-skin gloves, the lover with whom she had corresponded all these months and months? She found strangely shy in the midst of her happiness fairly good yes i may say it was a tolerably agreeable experience there were some pleasant people on board and i was not troubled with seasickness i'm glad you came back by way of the canadian pacific and you went to ottawa and niagara added mary vaguely as people always talk of places and countries they have never seen and what is niagara like niagara said hemming with a certain solemnity niagara is something like london The great falls you know are not beautiful neither is london but they are like london a unique a terrifying spectacle the roar the immensity the sense of a great power for ever driving forward all these things are identical some day niagara will have dried up retreated become a mere dribble among waterfalls some day london will be a handful of ruins what an unpleasant idea said mary laughing what dreadful things you always think of and then with a childish, frank outburst, she crossed to the sofa, knelt down on the floor, and putting her two hands on his shoulders, she shook him gently. "'Why didn't you come yesterday?' she whispered. "'You old silly. You stopped and talked to somebody at the club, I suppose?' But Vincent did not hear. He had gathered her up in his arms, the little, pale face on which overwork had already told, the charming, childish mouth with its, c- with its curved upper lip, the ruffled, fair hair. There was a long silence. Presently, Hemming sighed. Mary had almost forgotten her disappointment of yesterday and the emotion of today. Men were like that, she thought, the horror of waiting, waiting, and waiting did not occur to them. They never had to do it. How could they know? Dear, aren't you glad you're back, she asked, raising her head a little so that the brown eyes and the gray eyes met. Of course, of course, he murmured, glancing vaguely round the room, but there are so many things to be thought of. Is that, said Mary, gently disengaging herself from his arms, is that why you didn't come yesterday? My dear child, I had a thousand things to think of. I was obliged to see the colonial secretary on my arrival in London. I had a confidential me- message of the highest importance from the Governor-General of Canada. Vincent Hemming had assumed his most official manner, a Mary- manner that Mary had always instinctively disliked. Ah, she said, looking down at her belt, where the roses had dropped off one by one yesterday. I see, and afterward some friends, some rather important people, with whom I crossed over, insisted on my joining them at the theatre, and for reasons which I need not go into now, I thought it better to go. And did you amuse yourself? Was it a good piece? said the girl frigidly. I should not like to think you had been bored, the first night of your homecoming. He looked at her in slight surprise. It was so rarely she said anything sarcastic. What's the matter with you, little one? You look fatigued. "'I am afraid the sultry weather is too much for you. "'You must go away. "'We must get the roses back to those pale cheeks,' "'he said in his old-fashioned way. "'Oh, I can't go away. "'I'm hard at work. "'You don't know how hard I've worked. "'I don't mind, you know. "'It was all for you, so that we—we—' "'She almost broke down, "'covering her face with her bloodless, nervous hands. "'You are unstrung, overwrought,' said Hemming, "'in his kind voice, "'a voice which always meant twice as much "'as he intended to say.' He touched her wrist tentatively. Don't, little woman, don't. Oh, it's nothing. I'm i am a little overtired. I didn't sleep last night. Please don't bother about me. Perhaps it's the weather. You see, I don't remember, she added, of her being in London so late in the summer. Yes, I dare say it's that. No doubt the sultriness of the weather may have had a good deal to do with your indisposition. Poor little Mary. You must try a change of air. I don't know where, said Mary with a little shrug. If I went to Aunt Julia's at Burneymouth, I should have to sleep in a bedroom hung with framed photographs of tombs and talk to ritualistic curates. But Lady Jane Ives, she will be sure to want you at Ives Court. They're all going to Aix on Monday, and later on the house will be full. It would mean many more frocks and much higher spirits than I've got just now. But we'll go down and have long days in the country together, won't we? She asked wistfully, twisting with two white fingers one of the buttons on his coat. There's the river, the river at Goring or Marlow, Vincent, so cool and green and quiet on a week day, or the Surrey Hills, places that are mauve with heather and pine woods, beautiful solemn pine woods. Don't you remember? Like the place where we went the day before you sailed. We'll go there again, won't we? Yes, I hope so, if possible," said Hemming. But for the next week or two, I am afraid I shall be a good deal engaged. There was a silence which Mary, as hostess, did her best to break. She did not look at him in the eyes any more during his visit. It was almost as if he had struck her. There was a sort of ball in her throat. Her cheeks had got hot. There was color enough in them now, and her hands shook as she poured out the tea, which the maid of all work had brought in. But she must not look as if she cared. A woman, especially in her own house, should always smile. It was on that acquiescent female smile that the whole fabric of civilization rested, and for the next half-hour, as Vincent Hemming discoursed of the unusual opportunities he had enjoyed in Calcutta, in Sydney, and in Ottawa, of studying the different systems of government which obtained in various parts of the British Empire, Mary was a model hostess. And soon, too, he was gone. Afterwards, she remembered, he had spoken of seeing her again very soon, as he kissed her on the cheek at the door, of taking her and Jimmy to the theatre. And then his close-cropped grayish hair, the back of his shining collar, and his well-cut frock coat, were seen descending the dingy staircase. And that was all. The meeting for which she had longed, with all the ardour of a frank, loyal, and direct nature, had come and was over. She went into the little dreary bedroom and threw herself on the narrow bed. No tears came. She lay blankly, staring at the blue and green Kingfisher, with the text in large German letters, "'Come unto me, all ye that are heavily laden, and I will give you rest.' she wondered vaguely what connection there was between a kingfisher and that exquisitely touching piece, and then she remembered how her aunt julia from the seclusion of her gabled mouth via had once written her a long letter foreshadowing with the perverse joy of the righteous the day when her niece mary would infallibly need the consolations of religion her aunt julia had spoken of her as hardened well that exactly described her state of mind mary felt not only hardened but petrified what did it all mean he was hers was he not the man who had just left her all her thoughts turned naturally to him she was incapable now of comprehending a life in which they would not to share together she is perfectly aware of his little poses his not altogether amiable peculiarities but she had gone to the stage when they made no difference a french wit has it that c'est le ridicule an aphorism which may be true of politics fashions or art but which alack does not imply to the vagarities of human passion Vincent hemming once outside the door felt in his breast pocket for his cigar case carefully chose a promising cigar and thrust it firmly between his teeth while he stopped in a doorway to strike a match his sensations that afternoon were mixed it had been he reminded himself a delight to see little mary again if only he had not been so imprudent as to speak before he went away And yet, what could he do? Curiously enough, the girl appealed to the sensuous side of his nature. Her light, thin shoulders, her long, delicate throat, the rather pathetic curve of her jaw belonging to the type of beauty he preferred, the nervous energy which was her special characteristic, touched while it troubled him. As on the day that he asked her to wait for him, he always, whatever she announced her intention of doing, felt constrained to interfere. He admired her pluck, her perseverance, her dogged determination to get on, her fine appreciation of all that was best in literature and art. She's a little girl in a thousand, he said to himself, and not at all likely to make unpleasantness if things become impossible. Not that one would dream of doing anything but what was best for her, but she's young, she may see someone she likes better. By Jove, she ought to make a really good match, and in his modesty Mr. Hemming allowed himself to caress this idea pictured her in many diamonds at the head of a long dinner-table, a table scintillating with silver and crimson with roses, with a vague, undefined husband at the other end, and he, Vincent, sat by her side, and she, his little Mary, looked at him as he talked, with her emotional eyes, and murmured pretty, sympathetic phrases with her deliciously curved lips. "'Who knows?' he muttered, throwing away the end of his cigar." Odder things have happened, and then he went over his year of travel as he strolled down Regent Street on his way to call at the Metropole. Everything from the very beginning had gone off smoothly. He had enjoyed it from first to last. His letters of introduction—he had excellent letters, he reminded himself—had brought him in touch with all the important men in India and the colonies. He had ample material for a book. The thing, it was true, had been somewhat overdone, but then he was sure of his style. The book would not be written— after the manner of the globe-trotting m p and yet by the time the volumes were out he too would be among english legislators it was typical of hemming that he always thought of the hedgerow member of a parliament as a legislator he had quite made up his mind about that marriage might well be postponed a year or two but for a man to have any real influence on politics he must be in the house as luck would have it the member for norborough was known to be seriously ill, a lingering illness which must terminate fatally, and the party would already be making arrangements for contesting the seat. He had reasons to know that his candidature would be highly appreciated by the Conservatives. All that was wanted were funds. And it was then that his mind ran back to his meeting with his new friends. He had found the first, Mr., Mrs., and Miss Violet Higgins of Norborough, Lancashire, engaged in a protracted quarrel with the black porter on a train bound New York words, from Niagara, the Higgins family had wished to have the windows of the long apartment opened, but the black porter, having no personal objection to tropical heat, had insisted on shutting every aperture. Finally, Vincent had effected a compromise, and the perspiring mayor and mayoress of Norborough had been, he thought, somewhat unduly thankful. The daughter, a young lady with beady eyes, a high color, and a complete absence of chin, had watched him all the rest of the journey with extreme interest. He had not liked her appearance or her manners, her clothes were trimmed all over with gold braid, and she looked unnecessarily conscious on being addressed. But this first aversion had worn off during the seven days on the steamer, for they met again on the wharf at New York, in the Russian bustle of embarkation. The father, a manufacturer of the staunchest Tory principles, took a curious fancy to the young man. Vincent remembered how impressed the mayor of Norborough had been, when he found out that this was young hemming the son of the late cabinet minister how confidential he got exercising with him on the summer nights how easily the parents had surrendered miss violet to his care did that young lady evince a desire to pace the hurricane deck their wealth was abundance but not ostentatious like that of the chicago pork packers wives and daughters who graced the steamer with their presence. violet was their only child and elijah higgins took occasion one night when the smoking room was empty save for a select party of San Franciscans who were playing poker and emitting fantastic oaths in the midst of a cloud of smoke in a distant corner, to mention that he was prepared to settle a considerable fortune on his daughter if she chose a husband of whom he approved. Yes, Old Higgins was inclined to be friendly. He had offered to be president of his committee should he think of standing for Norbro. He had talked of heading a subscription to defray Vincent's election expenses. He thought, on the whole, he should accept their invitation to run up north and look around him at his future constitutions. One couldn't put things in motion too soon, he told himself, as he crossed Trafalgar Square and stepped down North Tumberland Avenue to the Metropole. Miss Violet had had a headache the night before at the theatre. It would only be civil to go and ask how she was. He had an idea they expected him, and so it appeared they did. They not only expected him, but they expected him to stop to dinner. The next day, Mary received a note from Vincent, to the effect that he was running up north on parliamentary business, but that he hoped to see her soon. The postscript was typical of the man. I rejoice to think that you are continuing your literary and artistic studies with your usual courage and energy. Only I implore you to consider your health, mental and physical. You tell me you are writing stories now. I love stories, I presume. Remember the work which entails a drain on both the imagination and the feelings is more exhausting than you perhaps imagine. A month later, Vincent was still at Norborough, and Mary, whose drawing for the Academy had again been refused, was working, all through the dog days, at her new profession of journalist. End of chapter 12